Hey everyone, welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. If you're new, we're glad that you're here and we'd love for you to connect with us. And today we're at the end of our series in Romans 6 to 8, where we've been, we've been looking at how God helps us change. Today's passage looks at God's work in the hard times. And we all face times when we feel overwhelmed. I remember when a friend of mine's oldest son was starting grade one. He went off to school feeling pretty excited. But when he came home from, from school on that first day, he looked shell-shocked. <laughs> Gone were the toys and activities of kindergarten, and they were replaced with notebooks and assignments. He felt he had done a lot in making it through the first day. So that evening over dinner, he asked his dad how much longer he would have to go to this place called school. <laughs> I think he either wanted to get back to kindergarten or just be done with it altogether. My friend explained that elementary school normally takes six years. Then middle school and high school would take another six years. And then he explained that most people went on after that to do college or university, which might take another four years. And then even after that, some people did graduate degrees. And then you had to start work. <laughs> With each level of schooling he described, his son's eyes got bigger and his expression became more overwhelmed. I think something similar happens in most of our lives. At some point, we move past the kindergarten phase of life, and it's, it can start to feel like it's too much. It can cause doubts in our faith. We begin to wonder, what good is God if I've lost my job? What good is God if I can't find a girlfriend? What good is God if I'm sicker than I ever thought I'd be? What good is God if... My child has gone down the wrong path. What good is God if I still struggle with my sin? What good is God if my debt still hangs over every decision I make? And what good is God if I pray, but he doesn't give me what I want? Ever feel like that? Sooner or later, I think that most people do. And today's passage answers those questions. So I'd ask you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. If you don't have a Bible handy, pause the video so you can grab one and follow along. I'll read from Romans 8, starting at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is inter interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of God. 
Now, the first answer to the question, what good is God, is God gives you everything you need. While God never promises comfort or ease, and he doesn't give us everything we want, he provides what we need to live and thrive in the midst of challenges and difficulty. God gives, gives us everything we need. Verse 31 starts with the kind of words that we can take for granted. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us. Now, that can sound like an empty platitude, right? Just about everyone has a vague sense that God's on their side. But often we don't really feel it. It doesn't stir anything in us. So it's important to read those words alongside some others. One of the most terrifying phrases in Scripture is where God declares, I am against you. And he says it more frequently than we'd like. In Nahum 2.13, Jeremiah 50.31, Ezekiel 26.3, I'm against you, I'm against you, I'm against you. God is against the proud. He's against the ruthless. He's against those who reject him. And we don't dwell on those verses for good reason, because God persistently invites us and calls, him to, calls us to himself. God wants to be for us. But I think we can forget what a wonder it is that he does. If you've resisted trusting in his son, this isn't a promise you can claim for yourself. God hasn't committed himself to you like that. But if you have, don't let this sit like some vague, hollow notion that you don't really believe. Claim, God is for me, as a statement of conviction. That's what you hear in Psalm 118, verse 6. It says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? God invites us to have that kind of confidence. The confidence that trusts in his plan and faces our fears fearlessly. In Isaiah 41.10, God says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God wants us to lean into our fears with a confidence that he's on our side. And we glorify him by showing that we trust him to be enough in these challenges of life. And God isn't just with us. He pro promises to provide everything we need. In verse 32, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's pointing to the fact that God gave up his own son for us. He didn't just lend him to us for the weekend. He allowed the full judgment of our sin to fall upon him. I wouldn't do that for you. You wouldn't even do that for you. God has already given you the most precious and costly thing he could ever offer. So if there's anything else that you need, he's not going to hold back on you at this point. He's already proven that he'll spare no expense for you. I heard one preacher compare it to a person who bought a new Mercedes Benz for their friend. Before they delivered it, though, the salesperson at the dealership said, Hey, since you're giving this as a gift, I thought it'd be a nice little touch to put a little ribbon on the front. But then the person said, Well, how much is that going to cost me? 
The salesperson is like, well, I don't know, about five bucks. Five bucks, that's outrageous. I don't have that kind of money to give. Now, we all know that that's a ridiculous scenario. That would never happen. Anyone willing to buy their friend a Mercedes isn't going to think twice about a $5 ribbon. And any God who's willing to give his own son for us isn't going to keep anything from us that we truly need. Last week, we looked at those words of John Newton. Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. If God hasn't provided something to you, it can't be because of a lack of generosity. It can't be because he doesn't care or he doesn't love you. It's certainly not because he doesn't notice. God spares no expense where we're concerned. He provides what we need. Now we still need to ask him. He wants us to pray. And there are lots of things that we're convinced that we need when in reality we don't. Or sometimes we just don't need them yet. But if we need it, we can be sure that he's willing to provide it. He's on our side. If you believe that, it should breed a sense of contentment with your circumstances. It helps us to accept what we're facing and trust that he'll provide. It helps us to resist fear and worry because God is bigger than whatever we're dealing with. What good is God if life is hard? God gives us everything we need, but he also stands against our accusers. He deals with the shame and accusation that can rob our joy and cripple our effectiveness. God stands against our accusers. Now, when you get to verse 33, it's almost as if Paul pictures us standing in a courtroom when he asks, who will bring any charge against God's elect? Then in the next verse, he asks, who is it to condemn? Now, it's not as if Paul is questioning whether this kind of thing goes on. Obviously, it does. His point is to say, who on earth do they think they are? He's confronting a painful reality of life. The hardest attacks that we face are the ones under the surface. Attack someone's arm, they'll feel the pain for a while, but it's bearable. But attack their character, their reputation, and it'll crush them. Nobody wants to be labeled a failure or disappointment. And yet we face that kind of condemnation all the time. I read of a halfback named Noble Doss. He had a celebrated football career. He won two NFL titles with the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, he appeared on the cover of Life magazine with his teammates from Texas University. He intercepted 17 passes to break a university record. And he was inducted into the Texas High, High School Hall of Fame and the University of Texas Hall of Honor. People remembered him for the plays he made, the passes he caught. But Doss remembered the one he missed, just one, one ball, one mistake. In 1941, he missed one. He was playing for the University of Texas and they were hoping for an undefeated season and a spot in the Rose Bowl when they went up against their rival Baylor University. They had a seven nothing lead in the third quarter when the quarterback found him wide open. The throw was perfect. All he had to do was grab the ball and run 20 yards in the open grass for a touchdown, but he missed it. And he said, I think about that play every day. 50 years later, it still haunted him. Do you know what that's like? 
Do you ever hear voices of accusation and judgment? The Bible calls Satan the accuser, and he calls him that for a reason. He speaks shame and judgment into people's lives, and it can be crippling. But for those who have trusted in Jesus, God stands with us against our accusers. To the question in verse 33 of who brings a charge against God's elect, the answer comes conf confidently, it is God who justifies. It's like one of those scenes where people are picking on the kid in the playground, and the biggest, toughest kid in the school comes up behind him and says, you got something to say to him? Say it to me. And maybe you're dealing with some accusing voices right now at work or at home, in your family or in your own head. It's important to sort those voices out. We still listen to see whether there's something that God wants to teach us. We listen to our critics because maybe there are blind spots we need to deal with, and often there are. If it's the Holy Spirit trying to get our attention, he'll be specific, and there'll be something that we can do. If it's Satan's accusation, though, it'll just be this vague haze of condemnation. Or else, like with Noble Doss, it'll be something in the past that you can't do anything about. If it's God who justifies, we can bring the issue to him for his ruling. We seek his discerning, discernment about whether we should learn from the accusation or reject it. But either way, condemnation is off the table. There is no more judgment for the child of God. God justifies all who trust in Jesus Christ. Now, some people misunderstand this word justify. People can read it as if God sets the record straight. He explains how innocent we are. But that's not what the word means. God declares our innocence after he's passed sentence on our guilt. He pardons guilty sinners on the basis of Christ's death on their behalf. People often remember the meaning of justified as just as if I'd never sinned. When we trust in Jesus, all the righteousness of Jesus is credited to our account. It's like we had a huge overdraft because of our sin, but when we turned to Jesus Christ, our righteousness account was filled up. And so God never relates to justified people on the basis of their sin. He re relates to us on the basis of Jesus's perfect purity. And if that wasn't enough, verse 34 adds that Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. It's like Jesus is serving as our lawyer and shouting, I object, every time Satan brings an accusation to the Father. Many of you probably know these truths. But like the promise that God is for you and won't spare you any expense to provide for you, you might take these truths for granted. You do that when you say, I know you've taken away my condemnation, but why didn't you give me that job? And why didn't you prevent this from happening to my family? And how could you allow me to get into this mess? And when we do that, it's like we're rejecting the Mercedes because there's no ribbon on it. God has given us a far more costly and precious gift. If we need the ribbon, he's happy to provide that as well. So we need to accept God's plan and believe in the good he's working in our circumstances. So what good is God when life is hard? So far we've said that he gives us everything we need and he stands against our accusers. But he could do all of that in a cold, detached way. 
He could write the check and sign the release on our pardon, but we'd still be missing something precious in life. And so he gives us one of the most beautiful descriptions of God's unshakable, unbreakable love for us. God holds us in his love. Verse 35 marks a turning point in this passage. It leaves the courtroom scene and the legal language of verses 32, or 33 to 34, and instead gives us the language of love. Verse 35 asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37 continues, We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then in verse 39, it ends a long list of threats in the statement of Paul's assurance that none of them will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Any idea why I repeat the same message about love three times? I think it's because we don't get it. We don't believe it. We struggle to accept it. God loves you. He doesn't just tolerate you. He doesn't just put up with you. He has set his love upon you. He takes delight in you. And it's not because you're amazing. <laughs> it's not because you always hit it out of the park morally or spiritually. He loves you because you're his and he's chosen to love you. And that's the greatest kind of love because you didn't deserve it to begin with. And so you, you know there'll never be any buyer's remorse. You can't fall out of this kind of love. And you've probably heard that. You probably know that. But what happens? You get the wrong diagnosis and you think, I thought God loved me. The relationship falls apart and you feel like God's abandoned you. You had a crisis in your career and you think God's rejected you. Hear the message of verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Tribulation is describing a crisis. Distress is some kind of huge pressure. Persecution is a blowback you take for your faith. God wants you to know what, that when these come, and they probably will, it's no indication that his feelings toward you have changed. God's still holding on to you in love. He loves you in the crisis. He loves you in the midst of the pressure. He mentions nakedness, danger, and sword. And Paul had already experienced almost every one of these trials. And the final one, the sword, Paul would eventually face that too. He was executed for his faith. But God never let him go. God continued to hold on to him in, in his love. And he does the same for you and for me. In verse 36, Paul quotes Psalm 44, 22. He writes, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Here he's quoting the Old Testament to say that God's people suffering trials isn't a new thing. It wasn't unique to Paul's life. And so we shouldn't be surprised when trials come. The problem is that you may be surprised because you've been taught that Jesus wants to give you your best life now. Maybe you've been taught that your sickness will always go away if you pray hard enough, or your bank account will fill up if you give generously enough. Those things are just not true. Christians aren't exempt from suffering. 
We live in a world that's under a curse because of sin. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we face some of the effects of that. In 1 Corinthians 4.11, Paul wrote, To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. Most of us aren't suffering on that level yet. But that same person said in verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He conquered those trials through the God who loved him. And here's why. We're in the midst, when we're in the midst of a huge crisis, the expression we see on God's face makes all the difference. A child in the doctor's office who sees the loving look of a compassionate father while the nurse sticks a needle into his arm, and a child who sees the angry face of his father jabbing a pen into his arm will both feel a similar pain. They might both let out a cry, but the first one will probably be smiling in relief before he leaves the room, and the second will probably have nightmares about it decades later. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, your heavenly Father looks to you in compassion and holds you in his love. He does that through the worst that this sin-filled world can do to you. You can overcome what would bury another person. Because by faith, you can see the expression on God's face. And for a believer, it's never marked by anger or frustration or hatred or rage. He always looks at you in love. And in case we might have thought that we were going through something that might be worse, or at least not included in what Paul was describing, he ends the passage with this poetic panorama of everything a person might face. And notice how he describes it in confidence. I'll read from verse 38 to 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you belong to Christ, he'll never let you go. He holds you in his love. He walks you through every trial. He stands with you right up to the moment of your death. And then he welcomes you with welcome arms into the paradise that he's prepared for his children. Now, some of you may know the history of Queen Victoria's second daughter, Princess Alice. Alice's second son, Ernest, was infected with diphtheria when he was just four years old. Doctors quarantined the boy, and they warned the mother to stay away from him, but she couldn't. One day, she overheard him ask the nurse, why doesn't my mother kiss me anymore? And it broke her heart to hear those words. She ran to her son and smothered him with kisses. Within a few days, both of them were buried. If you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, that's the love that God has for you. A love that never lets you go, never gives up, a love that never runs out. If you're not certain that you've received that love through faith in Jesus Christ, then come to him today. Turn from the sin and false hope of this world and embrace Jesus as your Savior and Lord. If you've done that, then don't be ruled by your doubts. Speak God's word to them instead. 
remind yourself often that God is for you. And if he was willing to give his only son for you, it's not going to hold back anything you need. Don't let shame cripple you. God is your justifier. And his verdict is the one that matters. Accept your circumstance. Believe in God's good plan. But no matter what you face, know that God will never let you go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so quick to read who you are and what you're like by whether our circumstances are going well or going poorly. Help us, Father, to believe you, to take you at your word, to trust you when you persuade us of your love. Help us to lean into the hard circumstances of life and believe that you're good, believe that you have a good plan, believe that you will provide for us. And may we never doubt your love. May we trust that no matter what we go through, we can't be separated from your love and we will always be sustained by it. Father, if there's anyone listening to this that doesn't know that love that we receive through faith in Jesus Christ, draw them to yourself and give them the faith to look to you. For we ask you in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I hope this message has given you help. Maybe it's help for the next time you're questioning, what good is God when life is hard? Believe he gives you everything you need, that he stands against your accusers and holds you in his love. If it's raised questions for you, or if you'd like to know how to receive his love through faith in Jesus, then leave a comment or send me an email. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, share the link and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.